Thank you, O faithful God, for your word that never fails, for your presence that is always with us, for your son who always saves those who come to faith, come to him by faith. And for the fact that, Lord, in our worship today, we can call you Father. For those who don't know you, it's hard for us to express the joy we, we experience in your family. So I pray, Lord, open up their eyes that they might be, be able to see not only their plight, not only their destiny without you, but they might see your love in sending your son to be their savior. That's our heart's prayer today as we gather together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> there is a popular TV series on PBS called Finding Your Roots. The host is educator Henry Louis Gates Jr., who is a Harvard professor. And the first episode of this series took place back in March of 2012, so it's been going on for 20 years. Usually each episode features some celebrity and they do their best to go into their background studying DNA, um, all the different tests that are available to them, the diagnosticians who are able to look at the facts and the history buffs who are able to go through the files and they bring everything they can to bear on the background of that particular individual often with fascinating results, often with shocking findings. And I've watched a few episodes. It's something that interests me. Maybe it does you. Because finding something about your roots can have a vital impact on the way you live. Or even just to appreciate where you've come from. If you're a believer, you're going to look at that situation and appreciate the sovereignty of God that put all of those seemingly random facts together and people avoiding disaster here or there and uh, allowing you to be born. So it gives you a sense of appreciation, a sense of wonder, sometimes a sense of pride, sometimes a sense of shame when you find out who your family really is. I think sometimes we have the ability to beat ourselves up too much if we came from a bad family, or perhaps to take too much pride if we came from a rather good one. And those who don't know the Lord process all these things in a rather different way. So when we come to the Bible, it is interesting that there is a lot of importance about understanding your roots and how that affects you, and not putting too much value in it, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to talk about in Romans chapter nine. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open them to Romans nine. As you do, let me show you a slide from last week. This is a unique section in the book of Romans, a new section where chapter nine focuses on Israel. Actually, all three of these focus on Israel. This isn't some type of uh, interlude. It's not some type of parenthesis. It is the continuing argument 
as Paul has been dealing with his own countrymen, the Jews, but also putting them together with the Gentiles so that all of them need salvation in Christ. And he has emphasized already that just because you're a Jew does not mean that you're right with God, the God who has chosen the Jewish people to be his own. In chapter 10, uh, we have Israel's present rejection, and that's what Paul is dealing with. That's why he says in verse 1 of chapter 9, I wish I could be accursed, that my own people, the nation of Israel, would come to salvation. And that's what he prays for in 10.1, praying that Israel might be saved. But in chapter 11, there is a lot of hope. Because chapter 11 talks about the future restoration that will happen to Israel. I think one of the most significant chapters in all of the Bible dealing with this coming together of church and Israel and how we are grafted in together in the same tree so that although there is contrast between the two, the church and Israel, there is great continuity and that is brought about uh, the emphasis of that is seen in chapter 11, as well as the fact that God is not done with the nation of Israel and that he is going to be bringing them back, many of them, by faith. And that's a whole nother study in and of itself. So we come to Romans uh, chapter 9. We already noticed the first five verses where Paul talks about how he longs for them, wishing he could be a curse, longing for them to come to faith in Christ, listing all of their privileges, which makes their rejection of Christ all the more amazing. When you've been given so many opportunities and so many benefits to look all over those and still reject the Savior, Savior is uh, astounding, it's shocking. But now Paul realizes that some questions are going to surface. And we're actually looking at two questions today. The first comes in verse 6. So the very fact that Israel has rejected uh, the plan of God, the salvation of God, the Son of God, and yet they're the chosen people of God, that causes some confusion. So he says in verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed which is the conclusion that many people have come to. To put it another way, the question would be, has God, God's word failed? I mean, if the promises to your chosen people did not result in their salvation, how do we know that the promises given to us will stand? It appears that God's promise has fallen. The word fail is sometimes translated fallen, which simply means uh, not coming to fruition, not being fulfilled. It's also used in a very picturesque form of a ship going off course. So Israel's gone off course. Is it because your word is insufficient to keep them? Is it because you are unfaithful. You see, the character of God is under attack because of Israel's rejection. He promised to bless them, and they have forfeited the blessing, and they are turning away from the Lord. But what we need to understand is simply this. Israel's failure is not God's 
failure. The very fact that they don't embrace his word does not mean that his word is unfaithful. Remember Isaiah chapter 40, repeated in the New Testament, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. It's hard for me to let you quote it because you don't know what translation we're coming up with. But that's a good one to memorize. And I think I probably just quoted it in the King James. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God shall stand forever. Do you believe that? If you believe that, that becomes your foundation. And you begin to view everything through the lens of truth, the word of God revealed. If you don't believe that, you, you put yourself as a judge over the word and you, you discern everything around you. You make choices about what is happening in the world based on what you think is right instead of what truth reveals. Big difference. That's where God said in Isaiah 55, some important words for us to remember. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Okay, good. See... I need your agreement because what we're about to dive into is tough stuff. And we're going to have to surrender some of our own thoughts, human thoughts, so that we might embrace divine thoughts, which we can't totally understand. Someone said, when swimming over your head, make sure you stay close to the shore. In studying portions of the Bible that are deep, make sure you hang on to those things you know that are true. God's word is true, and his thoughts and ways are beyond us. Yeah, it's a really good reason to praise because if God's ways weren't beyond us, we would have to be God, or he would have to be us in our fallenness and weakness, but he's not. So worship in wonder, love and praise, because God is greater than us. His word is effective, our understanding is defective. That's an important point to remember as you come into Romans chapter nine. And then here's a, a a real helpful thing to understand when you talk about this idea of Israel rejecting God. Verse six says, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. For they are not all Israel who are from Israel. Doesn't that sound like double talk? Until you begin to think about it and you simply come to the conclusion there are two Israels. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, the scripture is going to tell us. And this would have shocked many Jews. There are two Israels. Paul has already talked about the fact that there are two Israels in chapter two when he said a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is the circumcision of the heart done by the Holy Spirit. 
So there are two Israels. There is the natural Israel, the physical Israel, uh, the descendants of Abraham, and especially through Isaac and Jacob. But then there is the spiritual Israel, or as we're going to see the phrase, the true offspring of Abraham, which is a different entity. So if one rejects God, that's different because the true Israel is not going to reject him. So he goes to two stories, familiar ones, out of the Old Testament from the line of Abraham to illustrate or explain his point. Verse 7. Nor because they are his descendants, Israel's descendants, are they all Abraham's children. Descendants, but not children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Or the word simply means called. It's that same word that we saw in chapter 8 where God lays hold of something. It's a, it has to do with choice. Now, Ishmael is not mentioned here, Abraham's other son. Abraham actually had eight sons, if you're counting, and uh, he had three different wives. So the, the bondwoman Hagar gave birth to Ishmael, Sarah gave birth to Isaac, also Zimram, and then Keturah had five sons, and we won't mention them today because that will just be confusing and I don't remember them. Verse 8, so in other words, let me put it this way, Paul says, it's not the children by physical descent, literally children of the flesh, physical birth, who are God's children, but it is the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. This idea of two Israels is not a new idea because Jesus brought it up when he was talking to the Jews and we read about this in John chapter eight. Remember that story? Jesus simply said to them, if you hold to my teaching, you are my disciples indeed and you will know the truth, the teaching of Christ, and the truth will set you free. It bothers me when I hear people on talk shows get a little spiritual and they talk about anything in the world, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. This is the truth that sets you free. It's the word of God. But the Jews said, wait a minute. We're Abraham's descendants. And say, we've never been slaves to anyone. We don't need to be set free, which is one of the dumbest statements in the Bible. Because they've been slaves all of their lives in different situations. We're Abraham's descendants. And Jesus said, I know you're Abraham's descendants, but you're not his children. <laughs> if you were Abraham's children, you wouldn't be looking to kill me. Because Abraham wouldn't do that. Abraham is our father, they say. And Jesus said, no, your father is the devil. How to win friends and influence people. <laughs> your father is the devil. And the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning because he never abode in the truth. And you're just like your dad. <laughs> there are two Israels, Jesus said. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. John Flavel once said, Abraham's, if Abraham's faith be in your hearts, let me read that again. If Abraham's faith not be not in your hearts, 
it will be no advantage that Abraham's blood runs through your veins. So don't put too much stock in your ancestry. You know, my parents are believers. I'm sure I am too. This is supposed to be a Christian nation, which it isn't, but people think it is. We're, you know, I'm born in America. I must be Christian. Now, you don't get it that way. Verse 9 says, for this is how the promise was stated. And then he goes back to Genesis 18. At the appointed time, which was a, a year, about a year later from the promise, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And so now we're talking about that son, Isaac. Ishmael was a son, but he's of the bond woman. Sarah's the free woman, and her son is going to be the son of promise. Verse 10, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. So now they step down another generation. So Sarah has Isaac. Now Isaac has two sons. So there's kind of a focus in Genesis on the two sons of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac, but Isaac is the one that is chosen. They came from two different mothers, same father. Isaac is chosen. Isaac has two sons. And these two sons were both born from Rebekah. So they have the same father and the same mother. Verse 11. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand. And there's that word that is so confusing to us and so intimidating that we want to define it away into nothingness. God's election is his, him looking ahead to see what will you, you will do and then he chooses you. He looked ahead to see what Israel would do and then chose them? Oh no. That's not it at all. God's purpose and election. Did you notice he happens to be choosing the younger instead of the older, which it says in verse 12, not by works, but by him who calls. Rebecca was told, you've got two boys in your womb. They're going to be two nations, and the older will serve the younger. So I'm choosing Jacob instead of Esau. I'm choosing Isaac instead of Ishmael. Going against counter to culture, uh, the, the primogenitor, where the firstborn is supposed to be the heir. But the line is chosen not by works. Before they did anything good or bad, verse 11, God made a choice. And then to really blow your minds, he quotes from Malachi chapter 1 in verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Now, I can bring hopefully some clarity to these issues, but I cannot totally explain them. Now, the word hatred here is a very interesting word. Uh, there, there's three ways to look at it. 
God's not really talking about individuals, Jacob and Esau. He's talking about the nations they represent. So God chose Israel and God didn't choose the Edomites and the other nations. By the way, if you enlarge it just to nations, it really doesn't get rid of the question and the difficulty of the doctrine of election. It's still kind of there, but that's what some people do. Others look at it this way. Jacob, I've chosen, and Esau, I've rejected. But let me just say, I think that's a little too harsh. And gives us misunderstanding. Here's the best understanding. We're dealing with a Hebrew idiom here that Jesus himself used. Remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples in Luke 14? If anyone comes after me, but doesn't hate his father and mother. Remember that? Does that ever cause you pause? Doesn't hate his father and mother? Cannot be my disciple? But there's an interpretive clue in the uh, Gospel of Matthew that deals with the very same issue, and this is how it's translated, anyone who loves their father and mother more than me. So the hatred is a Jewish idiom simply to show by way of comparison or preference that your love for God should be higher than your love for anyone else. And all of us breathe a sigh of relief. I get that. Because Jesus is not teaching you to hate your parents. And again, this insane, uh, crass literalism would read that verse in the Bible, Mom and Dad, I just got saved and I hate your guts. I know that sounds a bit harsh, but it's Bible. Let me show you the verse. And, and the, oh my, oh my. No, it means that you love God more than you love anyone else. That makes sense, doesn't it? And it means, indeed, that Jacob was preferred over Esau. God made a choice, just like he did with Isaac. He chose the nation of Israel, and he tells us in the book of Deuteronomy why he did it. I chose you. Not because you were mighty. In fact, they didn't even exist. I chose you because I love you. <laughs> I need more than that, God. That's all you're getting. And we're going to see it in a moment with another question, perhaps some better answers to that. So God makes a sovereign choice, and we have to remember because he is God. I remember Spurgeon one time made a great quote in light of this verse that is found also in Malachi 1. <clears throat> Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I've hated. Spurgeon said, my wonder is not that Esau was hated, but that Jacob was loved. Are we not all sinners? Is it not just of God to condemn us all? Answer is yes. It is. The wonder is that he would save anybody. The wonder of it all, that he'd send his son to save us. That indeed is amazing. Human responsibility is somehow interwoven with divine sovereignty in such a way that God is always righteous and never does what is wrong. 
Which really brings us to the next question. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? And then the quick answer is not at all. Uh, I love the way the Phillips paraphrase has it. Do we conclude that God is monstrously unfair? I mean, that's what we're thinking. God's unfair. He is unfair. What are you basing that on, my friend? What does unfair mean? Equal, I guess. If you're going to be fair, then everyone has an equal opportunity. Where in this world is there that kind of fairness? Where you were born, who you are, your abilities and disabilities, your social economic status. I mean, we Americans don't get it because we're born in the top echelon of all of these things with great privileges. Did you choose where you wanted to be born? Our sense of fairness is always skewed when we leave God out of it and when we forget that we're sinners who deserve condemnation. Our culture today is trying to make everything equal. It'll never happen. Now, I'm all for justice. In that sense, fairness as much as we can. But I want you to know that God is not unjust. I remember as a young Christian, I came to my pastor, Bob Shelton, and we were talking about some of these issues. And Bob turned me, uh, turned the scriptures open, which he often did, to Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25 and read this simple phrase, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Rhetorical question with an obvious answer. If God is God, the answer is always yes. He will always do what's right. Now, we may not think it's fair, but he will always do what's right. I've got, to, I've got to yield my understanding to this God of truth who reveals himself in the scriptures. God is perfect in knowledge. He's perfect in wisdom. He is perfect in power. He is perfect in his faithfulness and his goodness, and he is perfect in his choices. Now, I need to say this, that the sovereignty of God never eliminates free moral agency because we still make our choices. We're not robotons. We're not pawns. God puts this all together in a way where his sovereignty remains sovereign and our human responsibility is never violated. You say, how does he do that? I have no idea. I've never been able to explain the Trinity and the two natures of Christ baffles me. And how this book can be the inspired word of God when it's written by men with their personalities and God allowed that and was still overseeing everything that was written so that the word ends up being the word. You can't explain these things. But we walk by faith and not by 
sight and the world walks only by sight. And I'm not going to believe something that doesn't seem reasonable to me. And I'm not going to believe something that I cannot see, feel, or touch. So this is really interesting. <laughs> the question, our second, first question, does God's word fail? No. To Israel's answer is that. Second question, is God unjust? Answer is no. But notice the answer that Paul gives. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now let me just say the genius of that answer, I think, is found in this simple comment. When you talk about God and justice, the answer is not God being just to people, because that's condemnation. The answer is God's merciful to people. Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim his mercy, which is a totally new perspective. And by the way, this comes from the golden calf incident in the book of Exodus. Remember that? Moses goes up to the mountain. The people of God make a golden calf. Moses comes down, breaks the commandments. Prays to God. God says, I'm going to wipe these people out. It's a sorry lot. And Moses said, well, if you wipe them out, wipe me out too. Which sounds a whole lot like Paul's prayer in the first five verses. Let me be anathema, condemned for the sake of my own nation. I'm sure God was testing Moses, and Moses' response uh, brought the wonderful answer to God, that God said, okay, I'm, I'm gonna go with you. I'm not gonna wipe the people out. I'm not gonna leave you alone, Moses. I'm going to go with you. And then Moses said to God, show me your glory. And God said, okay, I want you to hide in the cleft of a rock, and I'm gonna allow my glory to pass by you and all my goodness, and I will proclaim my name to you, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will pardon uh, compassion on whom I will have compassion. You see, the question is misconceived when we try to talk about God's justice. The basis of his dealing with sinners is not justice. It's mercy. And the whole world has rejected him. And he gives opportunity for people to believe in him. And he deals with people in mercy. Verse 16. It therefore, it does not therefore depend on human desire. So here's another thing. It's, it's not uh, just in us. I mean, there is a choice to be made. He's not talking about that, but it's not our effort to gain salvation. It's God's mercy. And he brings up another Old Testament illustration now. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, by the way, that's really cool. The Bible calls the Old Testament scripture here. What God says is called scripture. God's word, what he said and what is written is the same. This is God's word to us. The scripture says to Moses, or to Pharaoh, 
I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's, that's not such a, uh, a big problem. God raised Pharaoh up to a position of greater power and authority. That's all it's saying because he was going to judge him in, on the international stage for the world to see. And so he allowed him to get very powerful and let him do his thing so that God could bring him down. Verse 18, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wills. He brings Moses and Pharaoh together in that very last verse. Now you say, wait a minute, what about this thing of Pharaoh, God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Read through the book of Exodus and look at every time the word harden is used and you'll see it's about half and half. Pharaoh hardens his own heart, God hardens his heart. And I think the very first time is Pharaoh hardening his heart. So again, God is dealing with, with sinners. If you, look at, if you look at chapter one, he gives some sinners over to their lusts, okay, this is what you want, go after it. And he has mercy on others and brings them to himself. This whole idea of hardening, Leon Morris, the great Bible scholar out of Australia says, neither here nor anywhere else in the Bible is God said to have hardened anyone who has not first hardened themselves. God's hardening is a judicial act. And Pharaoh is just given over to his own wishes and sins. Mercy to Moses, hardening of Pharaoh, there is no injustice with God. And if you read, and, and I don't have time to look at Isaiah 6, maybe we'll get to that another time. But the scripture just makes it clear that God is not unjust when he gives sin what it deserves. On the other hand, his mercy is amazing. John Stott says almost the same thing that Spurgeon once said, slightly different. The wonder is not that some are saved and others not. The wonder is that anybody is saved. And that is the merciful God we serve. The judge of all the earth does what is right. You say, I don't think this is right. I don't, I don't think it's a good explanation. I don't think the Bible is good. I don't think God should have this opportunity. Well, in, a little later on in Romans, it'll say, who are you? Is there, is there an opening in the Trinity and you've made application for it? Who are you? You're a sinner. And if you've trusted Christ, a sinner, saved by grace. And that is the most amazing story in the world. Of course there are paradoxes. Of course there are antinomies. Of course there are mysteries, enigmas. We cannot understand because we're finite. God is infinite. And you'll never totally bridge that gap. God came down, but there's still a gap in our understanding. Always will be, and I'm glad there is, because God is God and I am not. And I bow before him. I'm so thankful that God is faithful to his word, and I'm so thankful that God is just and merciful. And I'm so thankful that I'm saved 
because of the mercy and grace of Almighty God and the death of my Lord Jesus Christ. It cannot be said that God is unfaithful and it cannot be said that God is unjust. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us through these challenging portions of scripture to get our bearings. We often come away still unclear about some things, but of this we are clear. You are God. That everything flows from you. And when we get to the end of this section in chapter 11, we will read those words that for you and to you and through you are all things. And that yes, we don't quite understand for your thoughts are not our thoughts. But we trust you for you're a perfect God. Oh Lord, help us to bow the knee before the, before the sovereign, before you who reigns above in majesty supreme. Amen.